Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we welcome Julia Cassaniti, author of the new book, Remembering the Present, Mindfulness in Buddhist Asia. Julia Cassaniti is Assistant Professor of Cultural Anthropology at Washington State University. Her 2015 book from Cornell, Living Buddhism, Mind, Self, and Emotion in a Thai Community, was the winner of the Sterling Prize for Best Published Work in Psychological Anthropology by the Society for Psychological Anthropology. We spoke to Julia on the phone about her research, her new book, and how contemporary Buddhist practices of mindfulness from Southeast Asia can help people lead richer, fuller, and healthier lives. Hello, Julia. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. We're really excited to be talking with you about your new book, Remembering the Present, Mindfulness in Buddhist Asia. And, you know, in mainstream American culture, mindfulness is everywhere you look. Uh, you know, I, I subscribe to Mindful Magazine, and on the cover they have, you know, Pete Carroll of, of the Seattle Seahawks. Um, they have uh, CEOs of major companies. Mindfulness is a, is a growing field within in, in corporate America. And you go to your iPhone or your Android, and you can find apps such as Headspace that allow you to meditate with your phone, which is kind of an interesting <laughs> concept. Um, and most Westerners appear to have some sort of hazy sense that mindfulness is found only in ancient Buddhist texts, rather than it being a living contemporary concept uh, in Asia. And your book challenges this idea that real mindfulness is, is not just in some ancient past, but it's rather in the present. And that's your title, Remembering the Present. So tell us a, uh, a bit more about what inspired you to write your book. Well, I came about it, I think, from two different angles that circled around and kind of got at some things that I hadn't really expected at first. On the one hand, I, um, as a psychological anthropologist studying uh, Buddhism, I kept coming across mindfulness in the United States in a lot of these same places that you're talking about in, in magazines, at the grocery stores, uh, in, and also in psychology journals and clinical kinds of studies and neuroscience studies uh, and it seemed really fascinating and it was really you know kind of talking about Buddhism as this um, beginning of this movement and so I thought well this is really interesting I want to learn more about it and at the same time I was doing a very different kind of study um, in Thailand where I've been doing ethnographic fieldwork for the past 15 years or so on um, psychological experience uh, and mental health and uh, religious practice and I was doing a project um, with a collaborator, Tanya Lerman at Stanford University on um, the phenomenology of uh, unusual spiritual kinds of events. And I, as I was interviewing people about ghosts and their encounters with strange kinds of things, uh, I came across mindfulness um, when people were talking about, you know, I, I, I got scared by this ghost, but then I remembered to have mindfulness, so I kept it away. And these kinds of conversations seemed to me really different than the ways that I was hearing about mindfulness in the United States, in the U.S. settings, where people were really talking about, you know, as John Kabat-Zinn is 
you know, suggested mindfulness as this, you know, present moment awareness, you know, and a non-judgmental attention to what's going on in the present. And I kept coming across these two different, um, basically conversations about it. And I thought, well, okay, you know, different things are going on in different places, no problem. Um, but I was at a psychiatric hospital in Chiang Mai where I was visiting a friend who I uh, call Stan in, in my book. Um, and he, he had been um, there a few times uh, for addiction problems um, and also some uh, psychosis kinds of problems. And he told me when I was visiting him, you know, the reason I'm in here, Julia, is because I don't have any mindfulness, um, using the poly term sati, um, for mindfulness. Uh, and he said, you know, my misathy. And he said, you know, actually, that's what's going on here. Everybody in this hospital is that they don't have mindfulness. And that's why they're here. Hmm. And I thought, oh, you know, okay, so are, are you learning about mindfulness? And, you know, while you're here, because it seems like that, if that's what you're missing, you know, then, then, then what are you learning about? He said, no, 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 you know, they, they, they give us drugs. Sometimes we do talk therapy, but we're not really learning about mindfulness. And I thought, oh, that's odd, because in, in the United States, at least, it seemed like mindfulness was becoming more and more common in, in psychological settings. And so I had a conversation with um, some of the staff members at the hospital, and this one uh, psychiatric um, doctor was telling me about how she was actually running a six-week mindfulness program at the hospital, uh, teaching staff to you know, practice their mindfulness. And so I asked her, um, you know, how is this, how is what you're teaching people, um, you know, in, in influenced by cultural, religious kinds of Buddhist ideas? Uh, because I was curious about how this, you know, this would work as, as kind of um, a medical setting, but also, you know, in Thailand. And she said, um, no, no, this is not, there's nothing cultural, there's nothing religious about it. Um, I'm just teaching about how you focus your mind on the present. And I noticed in her notes that it, they were all in Thai, of course, uh, but they were translations from some of the mindfulness-based stress reduction programs uh, that are common in the United States. And so I said, well, why not? You know, I said, well, that's just the way it is. And so we, we, I thanked her and we were walking out of the hospital and she said, why are you so interested in mindfulness? And I said, well, you know, and I explained a little bit about just that it seems to be everywhere. Uh, and I said, you know, I really, as somebody who studies Buddhism and I know it's a Buddhist concept. And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious and I'm surprised that there isn't really, you don't see there being more cultural religious components to it. And she laughed and she said, no, 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 actually it's all about religion and culture. I just didn't say that when you were talking to me because, um, you know, we get our funding for the, from the United States. And, you know, if, if I talked about all the religious, cultural kinds of aspects, um, people would start arguing about, you know, this lineage is better, this lineage is good, you know, let's incorporate this, let's incorporate this. And she said, you know, yeah, some things are going to get lost uh, if we just kind of do this Western type of program. But, you know, it's easier that way because, you know, she told me that, you know, if she started showing up, counting beads, wearing her you know, white outfit, people would call her crazy. And I said, even in a mental hospital, they'd say you're crazy. And she said, yeah, yeah. And we, we <laughs> laughed. And, and so we sat, sat down and talked for like another hour about some of the different kinds of ways that she thought mindfulness uh, would be practiced or is practiced or could be practiced in Thailand that might look different than the way it would be understood in Western contexts. And, you know, including ideas about uh, supernatural powers, but also about emotion, about um, certain ideas about how to be a good person, um, and it was fascinating. And I thought, well, this is really 
this is something, you know, this is something I should really look into. And I think the thing that finally got me to just start the project um, was this encounter I had with an American grad student who was in Chiang Mai teaching monks about mindfulness. And I told her, well, wouldn't you want to learn from the monks? And, you know, instead of teaching them, because you know, they, know, they know a lot about this. Um, and she did a, she was a psychologist and she said, well, actually, you know what, that's something you anthropologists would do. But I, you know, I want to try to, you know, make, do, do, you know, these different kinds of behavior changes or using these scientific studies. And I thought to myself, well, she's, she's right that, you know, hey, that's what she wants to do. But I also thought she's right that that is something that I could do. And so I started um, investigating it. And that's really the inspiration for the book. That's fascinating. It's, it's, it's kind of sad in a way to hear that, you know, that they have to uh, sanitize it, that, uh, you know, they, because of the Western funding. And, and you can understand that, um, but that they had to made it, make it as, I guess, secular right. as possible to make it palatable. Um, for themselves, which exactly. is, I think, very interesting, too. Yeah. So now, with as far as in regards to higher education, what kind of students and professors do you hope will be reading your book in the coming years ahead? Well, I think that uh, first, I hope that scholars of mindfulness uh, and Buddhist studies um, will be reading this and also psychologists who are interested in cross-cultural kinds of experiences. But I also think especially uh, undergrads, advanced undergrad students, uh, grad students in courses in anthropology, especially psychological and medical anthropology, um, cross-cultural psychology courses, um, Buddhist studies, Asian studies, religious studies, um, and also people who are interested in ideas about medicine and culture. I think that there's really more and more attention being paid to uh, variations in um, religious practices, but also the implications of them for ideas about health and wellness. So I think hopefully a range of different kinds of classes would benefit from this book. Yeah, wide, a wide variety of classes. Yeah, and, and in your book, you, you look at the actual lived experiences and, and techniques of mindfulness in Thailand, Sri Lanka, and Myanmar, or Burma, and you interviewed more than 600 individuals, from monks to psychiatrists, students and villagers. With all these interviews, what did you find was a common thread through all of them? Well, I think the most simple answer would be that everybody's different and that the context matters. Um, and that every kind of experience people told me about is really based on their own kinds of um, interpretations, their own kinds of histories, their own kinds of teachers, the people they're around. Um, and I think that that's more than just that, you know, stereotypical anthropological trope about, you know, context, context, because I think it really points to the idea that when we attend to mindfulness uh, and theories about the mind, uh, we want to recognize that the way that it's understood uh, involves certain kinds of frames, certain kinds of cultural frameworks, um, and assumptions underlying it about the way the world works. Um, so on the one hand, you know, I came across these pretty clear uh, themes or threads through the whole region. Like, for example, most people talked about either directly or indirectly uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is this kind of core basic teaching about mindfulness uh, that talks about mindfulness as being developed through these foundations of attending to the body and feeling and consciousness and mental experiences. 
but I also noticed that even though a lot of people talked about that, they interpreted them slightly differently. And in some of the texts that they were reading, uh, they would interpret chitta or the mind or consciousness um, more from a, an emotional point of view. Other people talked about it from mental experiences. Um, people connected ideas about feelings uh, to certain kinds of uh, um, dharmas or uh, dhammic kinds of teachings uh, about um, Buddhist ideas, about change, about reality, about ethics. Uh, and so I think that in terms of a common thread, I, I was trying to focus on the narratives of individuals so that I could really tell their stories first. But at the same time, I did want to try to come up with some main themes because I know that, you know, as much as anthropologists want to say context, 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 I know a lot of psychologists and uh, others want to know, you know, what are the takeaways? What can I do with it? And so as I was going, I was reading a lot and thinking through these interviews, and I came up with something that I call the tapes of mindfulness. Um, kind of, it's an acronym, but it's trying to allude to the idea that we're always circulating um, uh, assumptions or ideas or frameworks through our mind as we encounter new experiences, kind of like tape, um, tape players kind of w working their way over and over again, like looping in our minds. Um, but I focused on five different kinds of themes that I think are interestingly varied within the region, but also say something different about how mindfulness is understood in Southeast Asia um, or in these Theravada contexts of Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka. Um, than how we often understand it in the United States or in Western kinds of contexts. Um, and so the TAPE stands for Temporality, Affect, Power, Ethics, and Selfhood. Um, and each one of these, I think, says something important about these frames. So briefly, um, so the first one for temporality, I really um, found that people talked about mindfulness not just as paying attention to the present moment, but really using memory and using the past in order to interpret the present. And so part of the title for the book is also to remind ourselves or to remember, we could say, uh, that mindfulness in some of its really basic core Buddhist roots uh, has to do with memory and has to do with being able to remember what's happening now. And so the number one uh, explanation when I said, okay, what is mindfulness? or uh, what is a sati, and of course these are two slightly different terms, but they're uh, understood to be uh, the same in this, um, in this context, in this mindfulness, modern mindfulness movement really is drawing from this idea of sati. Um, people would say, well, I want to recall my mind, I have to recall my mind to the present. And I think that that ties into certain ideas about how the mind is understood to be able to wander off uh, in space, in time, um, just kind of we tend to just, just wander in our thoughts and we use mindfulness to bring it back. Um, affect, I, I felt uh, that people often would talk about how mindfulness really helps them to feel calm um, and feel relaxed, but not necessarily in a kind of unemotional sense. So often, I think in Western context, people talk about mindfulness as kind of a way to be happy, you know, like, like you know, use mindfulness to be happy. And that's kind of a, a, a goal. And kind of, I think that there's a lot of ideals about happiness. Uh, that are different than how I encountered um, emotion or affect or affective kinds of practices uh, when I was talking to people about mindfulness. Uh, they, they talked about um, this idea of calmness or letting go of emotional attachments. And I think this ties into some cultural ideas about um, what emotion looks like and, and how it might work. Um, for power, 
um, I think that in Western contexts, often people will talk about um, how mindfulness can help them to, you know, empower themselves or to feel more powerful. And uh, and I in Southeast Asia, I also came across that where people said it's very powerful, but it really was very very predominant this idea of power. And so in my book, I talk about how uh, people attached these ideas about mindfulness to, you know, if you have a really mindful mind, you can um, you can really um, be more kind of in control of your own psychological well-being, uh, but you can and you can keep away negative energies of other people and even kinds of uh, ghosts or spirits, which are often described as kinds of energies um, uh, and emotions of others. Um, and also, people talked about how um, mindfulness is tied to even political powers, like how the government in Thailand would say, you know, use mindfulness. Um, to you know, not protest or or don't don't do anything rash. Try to be mindful, and so it gets manipulated by the people in power also to keep people in check. And so it's really tied to power a lot. Um, and also just the power of of Western context to say this is what mindfulness is, and the doctors and the clinics saying, well, this is what mindfulness is, and thinking about mindfulness as tied to those kinds of trajectories of power also. Um, ethics, um, I think in Western context. And this is based on literature reviews, but also I think I did 120 um, interviews in the Pacific Northwest also as a comparison to try to get at some of these themes. Um, in Western context, there's this idea that mindfulness is really good to do, but it's also kind of um, in the moment, um, you don't want to judge what you're doing. And in the interviews um, in Southeast Asia and Thailand, Burma and Sri Lanka, people really talked about how important um, mindfulness can be to remember to do good. And so it's not just um, being aware, but really being aware of what's good. So people would say things like, um, you know, you, you're able, if you're really mindful, um, you're able to remember what will be the effect of this in the future. If I yell at my mom or something, um, I'm going to feel bad later, she'll feel bad. So I remember to do good with it. And if I'm doing good, it allows me the space, the mental capacity to be mindful so I can um, clear out um, other kinds of distractions. And then for selfhood, um, I think in Western context, there's this idea that, you know, mindfulness helps us to be our better selves. And that ties into a lot of cultural assumptions about what it means to be a person in the first place. Uh, and in a lot of the contexts that I was interviewing in, people talked about how mindfulness helps us realize that there isn't this core self or this, this core identity of us or an individual. Um, and then it really helps us to recognize the interdependence that we have with other people around us. So I think that those themes in general, um, I try to talk about how they're differently experienced by different people. But I think overall, this common thread of these tapes, I think, ran throughout the whole um, experience in the whole book. I like that approach of how you, you tied all together these themes, time, affect, power, emotion, and selfhood. And I'm curious to see how that ties in with the phenomenological approach that you uh, mentioned earlier on with uh, you know, studying people's experiences of ghosts and such. Uh, the, uh, the, this approach to studying meditation and mindfulness, like what were some of the physical and psychological experiences that were described by those who had attained what they called mindfulness? Well, I think that there could be two different aspects of answering that question. I think, um, first, people often didn't say, well, I have attained a clear sense of mindfulness. You know, they, there wasn't this sense of, you know, I now am mindful. There was really the sense of practice 
and kind of a habitual repetition of, of doing certain kinds of things that enable mindfulness to be developed. And I think that ties into kind of cultural phenomenology or phenomenological approaches in general, um, thinking about like Husserl and Merleau-Ponty, but also like anthropologists like Tom um, Shortesh and Rebecca Lester, or political theorists like Salah Mahmoud, Charles Hirschkin, like paying attention to the bodily practices we do and how that affects the experiences that we have. Um, uh, Marcel Moss talks about habits, um, how we habitually embody, the, he wrote this essay a long time ago about um, body techniques, how you know, by walking a certain way, we develop certain kinds of um, uh, uh, experiences and we have certain kinds of experiences. And so um, really it seemed like different techniques um, were used to develop this mindfulness to be able to attain some of these um, ideas about you know, emotional uh, calmness um, about certain kinds of powers and certain kinds of other things in the tapes there. Um, so there are a lot of different kinds of techniques in Southeast Asia. I think the, one of the most common people would tell me that they would say Bhutto, Bhutto, like they would breathe in and breathe out saying the name of the Buddha and that allowed them to remember the Buddha and the teachings of the Buddha, um, but also as a practice of Anapanasati, so it's mindfulness of the breath. Um, and that was really, really common. Um, and also, um, I, as part of the project, I did five um, meditation retreats uh, to try to see how it felt to actually undergo some of these mindfulness meditation kinds of practices. Um, two were by F.N. Goenka, who has a lot of, I think, hundreds of uh, centers of Vipassana training around the world. I think it's Vipassana is one of the styles that uh, John Kabat-Zinn and others have drawn from when they're thinking about the modern mindfulness movement uh, in the West. Um, and in Goenka's tradition, there's a lot of attention to sensation on the skin, and scanning the body for sensations to recognize their impermanence. And this is um, understood to develop insight in awareness. Um, and so that's kind of a, a practice that's really um, followed and taught by a lot of schools. And that may be one of the most common, not the most common uh, practice drawing from uh, Burmese traditions um, like Mahasi Sayadaw and Leti Sayadaw um, in Burma. Um, but I also did a retreat uh, by uh, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, um, who is probably the most famous Thai uh, scholar monk um, who really focused on the mindfulness of the breath and the breathing. And that ties into some of these Vipassana uh, traditions, but it also emphasizes focus and concentration. And so some of the people I talked to, or a lot of the people I talked to, talked about how mindfulness helps them to focus and focus their mind, especially a little bit more in Sri Lanka than in um, Burma and Thailand. Um, but really these different kinds of techniques. So there were, there was this sense that, okay, we have common goals, you know, to become enlightened, but also to be able to get by in life a little bit easier um, and then to just be better people. Um, and I think that these practices, phenomenological kinds of practices uh, were very common. So people would say, and I experienced kind of this sense of when I started out or when people say they started out, they would feel heat, they would feel heavy, um, they would get itchy, they'd get really bored, <laughs> like super bored. Um, and they'd want to get up and run away, um, but that over time through these practices, uh, they got easier and easier, and people described feeling light, um, feeling um, calm, but, but feeling light in this very embodied sense that things were easier, they were able to kind of let go of these attachments more. Um, and so for people who attained these clear senses of mindfulness, or people who described kind of um, feeling really mindful, um, they talked about really um, being able to be more attentive, being more calm, 
and also not getting really attached to things. So just to give you two quick examples, um, uh, like a psychiatrist told me how um, there was this patient who would always uh, hit her when, uh, kick her when she tried to give an injection. And she said, I use mindfulness to remember that that has happened in the past and that it will happen again in the future. And so I know to do the injection on the other side of, you know, the person. <laughs> so they went kick her. And so this is a way to think about, you know, being attentive to the present by using memory um, and this kind of effect of like knowing things and being aware of things. Um, and also, you know, another example, and I have lots of examples in the book, um, you know, um, um, a lot of monks talked about, surprisingly, about how they really wanted to, they always wanted to hit the novice monks who didn't do their work well, or they were just lazy or something, and hit them on the head and say, don't do that. And they said that mindfulness really helped them to not hit the monks on the head. It was really, really interesting because this came up a lot. And they said, you know, I'm not always calm and I'm not always perfect, but it really trains me in not having those kinds of rash emotional experiences. That's funny. Uh, it makes you think of the, the Zen stories with the master hitting the... Uh, <laughs> yes, I never thought of staff. Uh, so you So it sounds like, as uh, you said, mindfulness of the breath or the techniques similar to Vipassana were one of the, the mainstays of the traditions there. Um, yes. Were there any traditions there that you uh, were interested in and, and you think perhaps, you know, five, ten years down the line, may enter the West and, and become popular down the road? Um, I think so. I think there are some that w would have a lot of difficulty gaining traction. And I think one of my points of the book is to ha hopefully get people to recognize that this kind of stripping down of some of the cultural religious aspects is actually not really doing what it thinks it's doing. It's actually redressing them in these kinds of cultural ways that are real, that go really deep into how mindfulness is practiced. So um, I know it's not exactly answering your question, but some of the ways at first, but some of the ways that I don't think will, I think it will be difficult to really get a lot of traction will be ideas about the person, like um, about, you know, this idea, this Buddhist idea that there is no person there. Um, or even ideas about, you know, what it means to uh, be a, a part of these communities. I mean, I think that people are interested, but I think it's also going to be be tough because it's very ingrained. But I think that there are some ideas about uh, causation, for example. Um, people talk about how mindfulness helps them to be aware of what happened in the past and what will happen in the future. And that's kind of a core Buddhist thing that I, I came across that I think could really uh, develop in mindfulness and meditation kinds of uh, practices and uh, in the United States and in Western contexts. Um, I think also the idea that there are lots of different ways of practicing. I know that sounds like, oh, you know, anything goes or it's very, you know, contextual. But I think that this idea of mindfulness as being multiple um, and that, you know, if something isn't working one way, um, that it's, um, you know, possible to, to try a different way. You know, that there are a lot of different, different kinds of practices. And also the possibility of really focusing on a teacher and, and getting um, connected to certain kinds of lineages and lineages, lineage traditions. Well, this is, it's so exciting to talk to you and, and hear, you know, your firsthand experiences with meditators and uh, monks and uh, you, you just, uh, you know, so many individuals and their, their, their felt experience of being mindful. And uh, I really hope your research gets out there and has an impact on the field. Uh, and also, you know, not only within academia, but, but that individuals um, in the West that do have a practice to see 
the cultural context uh, of it as a, as a, of a living concept in, um, in Southeast Asia. I think that's a fascinating approach that you've taken. Thank you. So thanks so much for, for coming on the, the podcast and look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you, Jonathan. All right. Thanks, Julia. Talk to you later. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. That was Julia Cassaniti, author of Remembering the Present, Mindfulness in Buddhist Asia. As a loyal podcast listener, we would like to offer you a special 30% discount to purchase the book. Visit our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter the promotion code 09POD at the checkout. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.